0: Here we go. We're going to study the parable of the two lost sons from Luke chapter 15. Maybe that sounds strange to you, two lost sons, but uh, maybe you're used to if you've heard this before and remember your Sunday school teacher teaching it. She probably taught you this parable as the parable of the prodigal son. But there's two sons and that's important for the story. I'm going to unravel that today as we look at it. There are two types of people in the world. Only two. There are people who live by calendars and love to be on time. And there are people who love socializing and get so caught up talking to people that they forget to pick up their kid from soccer practice. All right, let's talk about those people first. All right, the people who love socializing and forget to pick up their kids. The world would be a boring place without those people. It would be black and white and very sterile. They are spontaneous and they are fun and they can get things done without being bridled by boundaries. They're very good at starting things, but not very good at finishing things. They're typically very creative and, uh, and they just they know how to have a lot of fun. Give them a budget, and they will look at that budget like they're trying to read a Chinese menu. Whoa! Oh! And they feel stifled, right, by, by boundaries and borders, by rigid rules. That's that one type of person. They, for them, here's, here's planning. Planning for that person is ready, fire, aim. <laughs> then there's that other person... For that person, here's how planning looks. Ready? Aim. 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 That person likes to, ha- likes to wake up the same time every morning, have breakfast at the same time every morning, have lunch at the same time every day, go to bed at the same time every night, that person has their socks and their underwear organized in the drawer exactly in the same place all the time so that they know where they are and their clothes are never piled on the floor. They're always in the closet where they should be. That person loves budgets. And for them, the perfect vacation is well-researched, well-planned, and so well-documented that it's all perfectly balanced and every activity during that vacation, you just spend the perfect amount of time on it, no more and no less, and get on with the next activity and you can fit it all in. That first person, they love doing everything. They don't really make a plan for it. They just see everything and want to do it all. Jesus touches on both those types of people as natural human instinct in our world and presents them to us in the parable of the two lost sons today. In some ways, he juxtaposes them against each other, and in some ways, we're going to discover how similar those two types of people really are. But the point is this, that this is not the parable of the prodigal son. Listen to what Jesus says, verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. So which are you? The younger son, he wanted to, be, to feel free, like, like he could practice self-discovery. He had played video games, and he understood what fantasy was, and he now wanted to live in that world of fantasy. For him, maturity was growing away from responsibility and keeping rules and his father's supervision. He wanted to to chart his own path to create a place where he could make his own choices. For him, when it came to religion, open-minded, tolerant people were in. And narrow-minded, bigoted people were out. They were the problem. The older son... He wanted to be responsible with moral conformity. He would criticize his younger brother when his younger brother was playing video games, and he would work overtime to compensate for the loss of labor from his younger son being so lazy and so checked out of the business, the family business scene. That older son, he was responsible. He would take care of it. He felt that maturity was keeping the rules was staying at home, was minding the family business, and was a team player. He would wash his hands before every meal and he would sniff in disgust at anyone who didn't. For him, when it came to religion and getting right with God, it's pretty simple. The good people were in and the bad people were out. They were the problem. So Jesus masterfully touches on these two natural human instincts in our world and not just human instincts and types of people, but it's a way that people have tried to get close to God over the years. It's a filter through which different people have religious views. Now here's something that's amazing. I want you to pick up about this parable. These two filters or these two worldviews are a lot more alike then they are different, at least in the presentation of the two sons in this parable. Think about it. The younger son bristled at the authority of his father. He rebelled against his father and ran away. He resisted his father's authority. The older son was doing the same thing. The older son resisted his father's authority as well. The older son didn't want his father's supervision to remain over him. His message was basically, hey, listen, Dad. Well, he doesn't even call him Dad. He kind of calls him, hey, pal. Hey, pal, pokes his finger in his dad's chest. I have obeyed you this whole time. I have shown you that I'm willing to work for the family business. I have done everything right. Now, I deserve for you to do something for me. And I deserve it for, to be my way. And each son resisted his father's supervision and authority, and each son rebelled. It's just that one did it by disobeying the rules and going far away. And the other did it by keeping the rules and staying at home. Both sons rebelled. Both were lost sons. So do you understand what Jesus is teaching us here? There are two dead ends when it comes to getting right with God. We rebel against God our Father and His authority by either running away from Him or by staying near and expecting that our obedience is going to get us something, that is going to do something for us in return for our obeying. Neither of those saves. Neither of those is right. The only prerequisite. For getting in on the grace of God is admitting that we need it. Is being willing to live under the loving, wise supervision of our Heavenly Father. So we've dealt with the myth that this parable is only about one son when it's really about two. We've compared the two sons and seen how similar they are. And yet there is still some difference to them. And here's another difference that you'll find in, in the shakeout of the parable that Jesus tells. Jesus is telling this parable to two groups of people. If you look back in the first verses of Luke 15, there's the tax collectors and sinners who were listening to him, and then they were being criticized by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So there's the non-church people... And the church people. The unreligious people and the religious people. And Jesus has a message for them both. But here's the deal. He he was receiving the hearts of the non-church people. They were interested in Him and flocking to Him. But the church people, at least their leaders, were hardening their hearts against Jesus and He was going after theirs. This gives us, as a church, and if you grew up with this parable, you should be paying attention that we want to pay a bit more attention, actually, to the, to the older son in the story and see the younger son's story as a setup to help us learn what we can from the older son. Uh, some of these insights are from uh, pastor, preacher, author, Timothy Keller, in his book, The Prodigal God. Fantastic book. Um, I want to read you some of his statements right now just so I can be exact and I can get you his points that he makes. And I think they're amazing in unlocking the truth of this parable. Right? So here they are. Keller writes this. The first time I heard this parable, I imagined Jesus' original listener's eyes welling up with tears as they heard how God will always love and welcome them no matter what they've done. We sentimentalize the parable if we do that. The targets of this story are not wayward sinners, but religious people who do everything the Bible requires. Jesus wants to show them their blindness, narrowness, and self-righteousness, and how these things are destroying both their own souls and the lives of the people around them. It is a mistake, then, to think that Jesus tells this story primarily to assure younger brothers of his unconditional love. No, the original listeners were not melted into tears by this story, but rather they were thunderstruck, offended, and infuriated. Jesus is saying that both the irreligious and the religious are spiritually lost. Both life paths are dead ends. And then he compares these two different groups in Jesus' ministry and how they interacted with Jesus, he says this, in general, religiously observant people were offended by Jesus, but those estranged from religious and moral observance were intrigued and attracted to him. Jesus said to the respectable religious leaders, and now he's quoting in Matthew 21, verse 31, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. The Jesus teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. So, Keller mentions that in general, the kind of people churches attract are buttoned-up, moralistic, conservative people, just like us. The broken, marginal, sinful, unchurched people usually avoid church. That can mean only one thing, Keller says, if our preaching and the practice of our members doesn't have the same effect on people that Jesus did, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. If churches aren't appealing to the younger brothers, they must be more full of older brothers than we'd like to think. There are many people today who have abandoned any kind of religious faith because they clearly see that major religions are simply full of older brothers. So more dramatic for us than the U-turn of the younger brother in the story, which is true, and which gets us to revel in, in the reckless love of our Heavenly Father of our God. As church-going people, which most of us here today are regulars, we should pay more attention to the fact of what Jesus says to us and teaches to us about the older brother, as Keller mentions, and that we need to understand about our view of the grace of God. And sometimes it's very tempting for us to view the grace of God as something that belongs to us our way and not to others their way. There is a sign that you don't completely grasp, the, grasp of the grace of God. And that sign that you don't completely grasp it is thinking that you do and others don't. Either in your heart of hearts or in, in your view of other people or in, in how we operate our church. So here's what's important. It's important for us to realize that and focus on how God's grace grasps us first. And to appreciate and to be in awe of that grace even more and more and more. So I want to show you how that grace had an impact on the two sons. Normally, when a father died in Jesus' day in the Jewish culture, he would divide his inheritance uh, among the brothers. The oldest brother got the biggest share. But that inheritance would become theirs only when the father died. So for the younger son to come to his father, who is still alive, and say, I want my share of the inheritance now, is for the younger son to be saying to his father, I wish you were dead. It was the younger son saying to his father, Hey, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. Even more shocking, in the patriarchal society in which Jesus lived, the very fact that this dad didn't slap that boy up top of the head, but that he fulfilled his request. And keep in mind, most of the assets of a father in those days would be in real estate, and so he needed, to, the father would need to liquidate those assets and turn them into cash and do it in a hurry. And when you are selling real estate in a hurry, you, you peddle it for a pretty poor price. So even more shocking, as the father went along with this, was seen as a fool in the community for selling his real estate at such a low price and then he gave the profits if there were any to his son then the, then the, then the younger son is, is in the distant country and, and he, he hits rock bottom and he realizes he needs to go back to his father did he catch what his plan was? the plan of the younger son is that he it says he came to his senses he, he came to realize what am I doing? My father's hired men are better off as servants than I am here in this distant distant country, not making a go of it that I thought I would make. I'm going to go back. Here's his plan. I'm going to go back not as my father's son. I will go back as a hired man, and I will work my way back into my father's good favor I'll earn my way, eventually, if I can, back into the family. That's his plan. How does that plan shake out for him? Jesus tells us that the younger son makes his way back. He's rehearsing his speech to his father. But his plan is interrupted by the fact that his father is watching for him. And his father sees him, Jesus says, from a long ways off. And his father, as an older man, hikes up his robe because he can't run with that thing all the way down. And he's probably showing his underpants a little bit and running to meet his son and making a fool of himself because he loves his boy. The father doesn't let him finish his speech. The son starts in. I've sinned against heaven and against you. ah. ah, ah. Hey, my son is back. Bring the best robe. Let's put a ring on his finger so that he knows he is back in the family. Let's kill the fattened calf. This is, this is about a once-in-a-lifetime kind of celebration when you kill the fattened calf in that culture. That's a big deal. This is not throwing burgers on the grill. This is a big, big deal. And so... They, they throw this huge party, and the father, in essence, is telling his son, you're not my servant. You're not going to work your way back into this family. You're my son. And you are part of my family, and we are glad you're here. For younger sons today, you know what that means? And by younger sons, I don't mean you have to be a boy, right? But younger sons who behave like that and believe that. That means in God's reckless love, in his prodigal love, he recklessly runs to you as if he were a fool of some kind and, and brings you back into the family after you've gone astray and you don't have to work your way back in. And He doesn't wait for you to clean up your life and get rid of all your messes and make up for your mistakes first and then He'll listen to you, but that, that He welcomes you back in with His fatherly love. How about the older son? Let's look at the father's reckless love when it comes to the older son. The older son refused to go into the party, and he disgraces his father by the fact that he makes his father the host of the party, right? The landlord. Everyone wants to be talking to this man, his father. The older son pouts outside of the party and makes his dad leave the party, leave all his guests, wondering where he went, and come out and deal with this pouting snob. You never threw any parties for me. I always obeyed you perfectly. Not like this guy. He doesn't even call him his brother. He says, Your son. And he cops this attitude like his father should be doing something for him because he's been faithful to his father all these years. Once again, graciously, affectionately, the father doesn't say, listen, buddy. But he says, won't you come into the party? It's as much for you as it is for him. And he uses some very specific words to help his older son understand that he is already in the family and has never left it. He says to him, I am always with you. Everything I have is yours. Son, don't be thinking that you have to work for it. Don't be thinking that, that it's only yours if you obey the rules. Son, you are you are my son, and you're part of the family. As much as the father. In his heart believed and wanted to convince the younger son that he w- was part of the family. He in his heart believed and wanted to convince the older son too, you're part of the family. So what happened? What happened? Did the did the older son go into the party and relax a little bit, enjoy himself? Were the, were the sons reunited? Did they become partners in the family business, and did the family business flourish? Did they have, get married and have grandchildren? And they were I, 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 Jesus doesn't say. The story ends. And he, he ends the story on purpose to leave you wondering, to leave you asking questions, to leave you seeking resolution and a happy ending and to leave you curious is there more and it's when we stop and when we wonder that and ask ourselves those questions and when we look carefully at the at the parable again that we find the third son The third son is everywhere in the story. The third son left for a distant country. The third son was in such a bad place that no one gave him anything. The third son obeyed the rules perfectly. The third son is the reckless love of the father. The third son is the undeserved grace. The third son is the long-standing, never-ending forgiveness. The third son is the ultimate answer to the story. He's the way of the sons back to the father. He's the true answer, and he's the life that they live once again. The third son is the son who is telling the story. The third son is Jesus, the son of God, the true son of all time. How does Jesus, the third son, compare to those other sons, the younger and the older son? How does he compare to the the younger son's desire to be free For self-discovery. And at the same time, the older son's interest in being responsible with moral conformity and rule-keeping. Where does the third son fit? The third son, Jesus. How much freedom does he have? Oh, he has freedom to do whatever he wants. He's God. He has... He has all the freedom in the world. And yet the, th- the, the third son, Jesus, chooses freely. He makes the free choice to choose his father's will over any other temptation, including the strongest temptation of Satan, to rescue him from suffering and pain and death and to give him the entire world and authority over it, Jesus freely makes the choice, instead of that, to choose you instead. And that choice means suffering. That choice means the cross. And that choice means that he's not going to so much discover himself And he's going to discover more deeply the will of his own Father. And when it comes to moral responsibility and conformity, there is no one who is more responsible than Jesus. He's the one who makes sure that when you go to sleep, your heart still beats like it should that your diaphragm sucks in and out and your breathing air and that you wake up alive. He's the one who feeds the sparrows and calls out the blue bonnets in the spring. Talk about responsibility. And he never misses a beat. But that responsibility, he takes and he doesn't lord it over you as in a, hey, I did this for you, now you better do something back for me. Jesus isn't a taker, Jesus is a giver. And so everything that he's responsible for, including your breath and the blue bonnets, he gives to you as a free gift. It's part of his grace and love. The Bible says there are no strings attached He uses his responsibility, not for himself, but for you. And he combines freedom and responsibility to be your Savior and to give you every spiritual blessing. That's the third son. And there's one final son. There is a fourth. Have you found him? He's not the younger son. Well, he kind of is. But he's not the older son either, at least the older son alone. And he's not Jesus. Jesus is the third son. But there's this other son. There's this son who has in his mind and his heart run away resisting the father's supervision and authority, wanting to create his own self-discovery, make his own choices. That son has realized that that's not the right way. And that son has returned and is living a life of celebration and joy in his father's love. This son also has turned to rule-keeping as his religion And rule-keeping not for the sake of pleasing his father, but rule-keeping for his own sake to get something from his father that he might not otherwise get. Rule-keeping that has made him feel superior over others. It made him actually forget that others need the grace of God and his grace too. And the fourth son has been sought out by the father and his reckless love and brought back into the party And assured that he's in the family no matter what, and that he doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't have to work as hard as he thinks he has to work to be in the family. But that fourth son does work hard, does enjoy being in the family, not as a slave, not as a servant, but as a son. And that fourth son recognizes Jesus in this story and in this parable. And wants nothing better than to be as much like the third son as possible. And that fourth son is you. Amen.